This is the Women's Retail Collective Podcast, where I, your host, Anne Mazenga, pull together retail's most influential women to talk about their careers, how they made it to senior level leadership, and how they're leading their organizations through the rapidly evolving retail industry. This podcast is made possible through the support of our sponsor, Parcel Pending. Don't just improve your customer experience, make it special with Buy Online, Pick Up and Locker by Parcel Pending. Purpose built to meet retailers' unique needs, this smart delivery solution seamlessly integrates with existing order management systems and apps to make Bopus faster, safer, and more flexible for shoppers. To learn more, visit parcelpending.com. I'm so excited today because I have with me on the podcast, Sucharita Kadali, VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester. Sucharita, welcome back. We, you were here for a fast five. Now I get to bring you back and we get to talk about you, which I'm so excited about. How are you doing? Oh, thanks so much for having me, Anna. I mean, I don't know, um, you know if anyone else will be super excited, but, uh, but I'm happy <laughs> to be here. It's, uh, it's always fun to talk to you. Well, Sucharita, we got to hear a little bit about your background on the Fast Five, but for people who might just be listening to this podcast for the first time, I'd love to learn a little bit about you. Where where did you grow up? You know, how did you kind of get into this career that you're in today? Yeah, so I um, grew up in West Virginia, of all places to... Um, yeah, you know, whenever people are like, say something interesting about yourself, I can just say, I grew up in West Virginia, and that seems to, you know, throw people for, for a loop. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in, in a little town called Fairmont, which I, um, until I lived in Charlotte, was the place where I lived the longest. Um, okay. I, you know, went to all, did all of my schooling there. Um, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's, uh, it's like the closest big city is Pittsburgh, which is two hours away, and um, it uh, it was a coal mining town. Um, and we, of course, know what happened to the coal mining industry. So um, by the time I I left for college, um, it was you know the population I think was like less than twenty thousand people. Um, wow. So that was the the town. You know that was where I grew up. So wh- what did you do? Like, what, what do you do for fun outside of watching MTV? What do you do for fun as a kid in, in West Virginia? One thing that I do, I did do, and it probably consumed more of my time than like a lot of other <laughs> young people who are, you know, my age is um, I had a lot of pen pals. You remember it? Like there were pen yes. organizations that would connect you. Um, and I had pen pals from, I would have as many as possible. My mom was like, who are these strange people? You know, it was like before catfishing, but she, she, <laughs> she was yes. paranoid that are these really young children in other parts of the world who are writing you? But I had these pen pals that I would like write these like long letters to. And, you know, I'd always, always write them back. Like I had pen pals from in Jamaica and France and, um, you know, not that it's that exotic, but it was exotic to me living in West Virginia. Yeah. I always liked meeting people and I always liked learning about people. What were you studying in college after high school? Like what was your dream? I went through a lot of different, you know, kind of phases of what I wanted to do professionally. And um, I was obsessed with Saturday Night Live when I was in high school. Really? Um, And yeah, yeah. And interestingly, um, 
there, I went to, I, I ended up going to Harvard for college and, um, the, and Harvard has, um, this organization called the Lampoon, um, which is actually a feeder to a lot of, um, you know, just Hollywood writing jobs. And yeah. I think there were a few SNL writers that, that came out of, you know, there were like Lampoon alums. Um, and, you, you know, kind of, so, so I actually, I, I never, ultimately, you know, kind of went to Lampoon, but that was, those were my ambitions, um, you know, kind of going in is to, to go be, go be a writer somewhere. Um, and, and, uh, so, so that was, um, a little bit of a, you know, kind of a not completely not retail at all. I thought I wanted to be in the entertainment industry and, yeah. And, um, you know, kind of actually my first job out of college was at Disney, um, and it was sort of like my sideways door into entertainment because I didn't have a creative job. It was a business job. It was part of their strategic planning group. Um, but I thought I'm, I'm close enough. I'm, you know, kind of in the building with the CEO and, um, you know, I'll, I'll find my way to You'll find your way. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of, you know, took like classes at UCLA and, you know, kind of would, would try to, you know, have these meetings with, um, you know, people who were at talent agencies and, and development companies, um, in, in LA to, to, to see if I could get, get a job elsewhere. Um, and then I, you know, I, I think that I just realized that, that I think what was a little bit disillusioning to me in LA is, um, there was so much talent and there were so many amazing writers and actors and, and people who, um, you know, kind of were really, really good at what they did, who would never get a shot. And, um, that was, um, you know, whereas in business, it just seemed like it was a lot easier to get a job, you know? Right. So, um, you know, and, and to get paid well, um, you know, for, for a job. So, so a lot of that just, you know, kind of those, those ambitions and, uh, you know, kind of the dreams, uh, you know, sort of, sort of went, went away at that point. Um, I, I'd gotten as close as like, I got a job offer with, um, this director, um, named Judd Apatow uh, to be like his like personal assistant or something. I don't know if you what. Yeah, it was totally wild. Like, um, and, and for anybody who's listening to this, who doesn't know who he is, I mean, he's a pretty famous comedic director. Yeah. He, you know, he's like, uh, he directed a bunch of, and a writer too. And he's done a bunch of like the Jim Carrey and Ben Stiller um, work. So he's, he was, and he still is, I think, you know, really pretty, pretty, you know, prominent in, in LA. Um, and life could have, could have taken a very different direction had I, gone in that direction, but, um, but I didn't, I decided to go, you know, travel the world for six months. And then, you know, kind of in the middle of that trip, I got an email from, from a boss, an old boss at Disney, who basically said that she'd raised money to start this startup. And, um, you know, that kind of took me, it was an e-commerce startup and it took me in a completely different direction, um, into the world of internet and retail, which was just beginning, um, at that, that point in time. So was that your first, like, retail job, would you say, Suturita? The first true bona fide retail job was um, at this uh, startup um, that was called Baby Style. And I think we expand the name uh, shifted to East, uh, more of a parent company name, because the idea was to have different styles. Um, sure. 
you know, with it. And so what did you think of that? Like you were getting in right on the ground floor when e-commerce is kicking off. I mean, did you just, you loved every minute of it? Was it crazy? Like, you, you know, how did that kind of spur and kind of get you into the roles that you you went in after that? That company, um, the CEO raised um, at that time, $100 million, which I would say even by today's standards is not a trivial amount of money. No. It was just a super, super interesting environment. We um, we had Cindy Crawford as our spokesperson. Oh, wow. Uh, so yeah, that was, uh, that was fascinating. So you learned uh, how to do like celebrity negotiations, e-commerce and uh, a startup all within one job. It sounds Yeah. Like. Yeah. It was, it was a real, it was such an interesting learning experience and um, it was business school before business school for me. Um, yeah. So, so I learned a lot about you know, kind of business launching um, a new business, a nitty gritty, you know, wearing lots of different hats. And, and I learned about retail too. Talk about your role now at Forrester. What, tell me a little bit about what you're doing there. And, and I want to kind of dig into you know, your approach to, to how you're, you're doing your research and, and the kind of analysis that you put together. I happened to be a client of Forrester's at the time. And, um, the retail analyst position came open and, um, you know, the person who was in it was moving on to another role. She actually was promoted. So it was backfilling her position. And, um, you know, I, I applied because I was like, I, I think I would rather do that job. It seems more independent. I like writing. Um, and, um, you know, there are not a ton of people who know, um, you know, who know the internet and know e-commerce right now, um, you know, at the time. So, you know, why not me? Um, so I, I applied and um, I love it. You know, I mean, it's been the job that I've been in longer than any other job that I've had. And um, it is uh, a lot of different hats. It's a little bit of um, consulting. It's a little bit of journalism. It's a little bit of academia. Um, so it's, it's a lot of, um, fun jobs all in one. I, I can only imagine. Um, I I'm curious, Sutrita, how you think about your approach to kind of staying well-rounded, you know, as a, as a non, non-researcher, non-analyst person, like how do you think that people, um, working for some of these big companies, working for the, some of these startups, how would you say that they should th- be thinking about things as they approach their research of the retail industry or like who to follow or how to analyze kind of these reports? Well, definitely following people like you, Anne. I mean, that's a, that's a huge part of, you know, kind of, I mean, I think that, you know, kind of the more, um, you know, kind of experts and sources that you can, um, you know, ingest information from is, is crucial. Um, I, I think that, you know, just putting um, a layer of, of skepticism on, on anything that you see or hear is, is important. I mean, one of my sources is often like the Amazon day one blog, which, you know, kind of usually has a lot of, you know, kind of insights and announcements from the company. Um, but, you know, you don't read it and believe everything they say. It's sort of, 
you know, Pravda in the Soviet Union. I mean, you've got to approach it knowing that it's propaganda. In my line of work, which is often about emerging technologies, um, you, you know, certainly announcements on funding and uh, new companies are, are always of interest. Um, I, I, you know, but at the same time, I tend to be, you know, I think that venture capitalists are essentially, you know, used car salesmen and you you have to be really skeptical about what comes out of their mouth, but, um, you know, kind of it's, it's always useful to know what they're investing in. Um, because it's, and it's important to know what's out there, um, and, you know, kind of really do your homework on, you know, kind of, well, what does consumer data say, or what does retailer data say about the usage or the adoption or the utility of different technologies, you know, but you always have to ask yourself, like, why are people saying what they are saying? What's in it for them? Um, you know, because in general, um, business, most businesses thrive the most when they keep their mouths shut, not when they you know, are out there spilling their trade secrets. Well, Sutrita, it's very clear why we see your name, I think, referenced, because I think you you do a really good job. It's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I wanted to have you on this show is just, um, you know, I, I think people are so familiar with seeing you as as the expert that they go to as they're trying to, you know, figure out who to follow, the why question to ask in this industry. Is there anything else that comes to your mind when you think about things that people in the retail industry should be paying attention to, but they're not. I mean, I see the future of retail. The the shift that's happening now is that we've been talking about the shakeout in physical stores for for a long time. Um, But at the same time, we know consumers love brands. And we've been seeing a little bit of this and like luxury. um, And it is only going to become more pronounced, which is essentially more brand manufacturers just becoming the retailers of the future. You know, companies like Apple, I think are like the um, the poster child of of that movement, and we'll just see more and more of that in the years to come. And some of these companies it may not make sense for them to have storefronts like consumer packaged goods companies, but the internet is actually um, and an e commerce site is actually the perfect place for them to to set up shop. And um, so so there is that shift that is happening and will continue to happen and will be where shoppers purchase in the future. Um, but brands are not necessarily well set up and, um, you know, to, to, to take advantage of that. And that's sort of their blind spot is that many of them have had crazy distribution strategies that made a lot of sense in 1980, but not make sense in the age of the internet in 2021 um, or, you know, kind of 2030. And what they need to do is that they they need to act like, you know, kind of media companies paranoid about digital distribution and, you know, start putting legislation in place that, um, you know, kind of puts parameters around distributors and, you know, kind of gives creates penalties for counterfeit production. And, um, you know, kind of they need to think very, very carefully about their own gray market distribution because it may have been okay in 1980 
1990, but it is really, really bad in the age of the internet to have gray market distribution because search costs are zero and your gray market goods are sitting right next to, you you know, kind of legitimate um, authorized merchandise that was, you know, merchandise that was produced three years ago, you know, and maybe has similar packaging is sold right next to the merchandise that was produced yesterday. And that's not right. That's not cool. That's not what you intend as a as a brand, and all of that needs to be cleaned up. and um, And brands are not there yet. They don't even think that this is a problem. Um, you know, every brand I talk to, they their heads are in the sand with that. But that is what will destroy their brands if they don't. You know, and will give oxygen to startups that will displace them if they don't start thinking about it now. Um, they have the ability, really. This is they're in a position of strength if they if they were to recognize it. Um, but I don't know that a lot of them do because they're still sort of fixated on this. And they see the trees, not the forest, and um, you know they just see you know, kind of a handful of accounts in front of them and, you know, kind of market share. They're not looking at a, the bigger picture. Susharita, we've covered so much today. You've, you've given us so much insight into you know, your career journey. I wonder, you know, outside of, of the like retail industry advice that we just talked about, what advice would you have for somebody who's, you know, maybe early on or, you know, in the middle of their retail career right now, as you kind of look back on your experience? What I would do in like, like, for instance, I, I should have gone to like, you know, Google or Amazon coming out of business school. That probably would have been a wiser decision and I would have been wealthier. Um, and, but instead I, you know, kind of, I went to, um, I went to Toys R Us, which went bankrupt, um, which I thought, you know, initially, oh, it's a great opportunity to learn. And, it, you know, and it, and it was a great place to learn. And I learned a lot there. But if I had to do it again, I would go to a company that was, um, op- you know, operating from a position of strength. And I would, um, you know, have gone to a place where, um you know, it was more in growth mode um, okay. you know, versus one that was in decline. Um, I I think that in retrospect, um, I should have listened to my favorite quote from Warren Buffett, which I actually didn't hear until, you know, long after I left Toys R Us, um, which is you can put, um, you know, if you put a great management team in charge of a, a company with a reputation for bad economics, um, it's usually the reputation of the company that survives. And, um, you know, and I think that that's the reason that I would go with a growth company is that, you know, you can't fix, it's really, really hard to fix a company that is um, that is downtrending because it may not be downtrending for any reasons that any individual person or group of people can fix. Well, I, I love that advice. I've not heard that before, but I think that's incredibly important as, you know, people are reconsidering, you know, next steps in their career with the pan- coming out of the pandemic. Um, you know, it's, it's not always that big title or something. It, it's really about, you know, where can you grow? Where can you learn? And to your point, you know, who has the most growth potential um, and who, what company is there that you can both grow and learn from? It sounds like. If you could write one person a thank you note for the impact that they had on your your life, your career, who would you write that 
thank you note to, and what would you say to them? It would probably be, um, you know, probably an early, um, manager from, from Disney, um, who actually was one of the, the first people that take me under her wing and, um, you know, kind of, you know, show me, um, you know, how to be a good manager and how to, you know, kind of what was, you know, and, and she really read, led a lot by example. And, um, you know, because I think that not, not every, you know, you don't get taught how to be a great manager and not everybody has a natural inclination for it. So you learn often from observation and, um, you, you know, kind of what other people do right. And, um, yeah, I think that, that, that was, that was probably, you know, the, you, you know, kind of the, the first person who, um, you know, kind of was, was a little bit more, you know, kind of took an interest in, in teaching me, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, kind of gave me a lot of lessons that I was able to, um, you know, take into consideration. Yeah. I'm very glad that you had that that mentor because um, I can say on behalf of a lot of people listening, myself included, um, we really look up to the leader that you are in the retail industry today. And um, I'm just, I'm so thankful that you were able to spend some time with us today to share that story. So um, with that, uh, I'd like to thank Sucharita Kadali, VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester for joining us on the Women's Retail Collective today. Thank you so much, Sucharita. Thanks so much, Anne. Thanks for having me. If you could hold your own concert with three bands, dead or alive, who are you choosing? All right. So I'm going to have to um, think who are my favorites. So you two, for sure. Um, Love it. <laughs> I'm such a child of the, the 80s, right? Um, can, I, can I also say... Um, because I am a child of the eighties, um, you, you know, well, I guess it'd be like seventies and eighties journey. Um, you know, this Harry doesn't sing anymore. I know it's like, you know, imposters now. Um, and that's okay. You can bring journey back as they existed in the seventies. That's okay. It's your concert. <laughs> as they existed. Exactly. Yeah. And, yes. um, oh, queen, queen. Oh yes. I love queen. That's amazing. Perfect. That's a great concert. I would definitely <laughs> attend.